This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 9th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. As Afghan leader Hamid Karzai speaks in Washington this week and President Obama considers troop levels in Afghanistan, it's a good time to once again reevaluate the U.S. mission there and what the U.S. has achieved. Malou Innocent, a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute, offers her thoughts. President Obama has yet to make a decision on how fast he will withdraw the 66,000 U.S. troops that still remain in Afghanistan, although he has promised to substantially decrease uh, U.S. force levels. Uh, last May, he and President Hamid Karzai signed a long-term strategic partnership agreement in, that really commits the United States to the security and stability of Afghanistan, at least through 2024. Uh, just last week, General John Allen, the commander in Afghanistan, provided the White House with a number of options for a residual U.S. troop presence that ranged uh, from as low as 6,000 U.S. troops to as high as 20,000 U.S. troops. Uh, but I think it's important to keep Keep in mind when we hear these numbers being bandied about uh, that no specific number ensures either success or failure against these militant groups in the region. We have to keep in mind that over 100,000 allied troops were unable to uh, successfully sustain the gains that they made and sort of consolidate the conquests that they had. I think part of that is because the nature of the insurgency. Uh, you know, just last uh, April, the Pentagon released a report that found that the Taliban-led insurgency remains highly adaptive. Um, it has significant regenerative capacity. It is able to operate with impunity through high-profile attacks, targeted assassinations, a shadow government, um, even the Afghanistan's uh, Highway 1. Uh, this is a, a 300-mile ring road that links Kabul uh, to the Kandahar province in the south. Even that has been frequently interdicted by Taliban militants. So we've been really unable to connect and translate our short-term gains, which have been significant, into really something that's sustainable for the future of that country. What about our stated goals with respect to our presence in Afghanistan? Currently, we're supposed to be handing off responsibilities, which, based upon the discussions that you and I have had and watching news events unfold, just by virtue of the fact that we're creating this expectation that our troops will be handling off responsibilities to Afghan troops to secure this largely ungovernable country. It just it, – it seems like just sort of a non-starter. Right. I mean – even the way you presented it, it's so funny. The the strategy and the mission has been riddled with so many contradictions. You know, it's been said that the coalition has managed to turn the world's best irregular fighters into the world's worst conventional military. You know, according to the Pentagon, uh, the 350,000 strong Afghan National Army and police, um, which the U.S. has spent $39 billion to train and equip, only about one brigade is able to operate without U.S. assistance. Even that definition is a bit murky uh, because there are units that are labeled independent with advisors. So it's not exactly clear how they'll be able to take over responsibility for various provinces once we leave. Uh, beginning last March, about 20 of the country's 34 provinces were transitioning over to Afghan uh, control. Uh, but I think overall, when we look at the, the force numbers, we also need to look at quality of the recruits, not just the numbers. Uh, you know, attrition rates are high. Professionalism is extremely low. And also, you know, many of the coalition forces uh, see Afghan National Army recruits as unmotivated, highly dependent, and really making very little substantive progress. Also, just last October, 
the International Crisis Group found that there are very powerful uh, patronage networks within the upper echelons of the defense and interior ministries, and this has fragmented both the officer corps and the rank and file. So you have a situation where there are many number of Afghan army and police force members who are fighting for their specific factions and not for the country as a whole. Uh, so there are many problems in terms of trying to create a government and a professional military that's suitable for our interests, while at the same time meeting the needs of the Afghan local people. On May 21, 2002, Republican and Democratic lawmakers passed what is known as the Afghanistan Freedom Support Act, pledging to advance a broad-based, multi-ethnic, gender-sensitive, and fully representative government in Afghanistan. To the extent that this country can be governed at all, to the extent that the values that 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 largely govern this country and the, and the hearts and minds of people who live there represent what are clearly Western values. Uh, you know, what are we to take away from uh, our efforts over the past 10 years at trying to implement these goals? Well, certainly the efforts have been well-intentioned. There was a great deal, I would say, of even altruism in terms of uh, U.S. strategy and uh, the America's, America's civilian military mission to try and revamp the Afghan society to equalize gender relations. And certainly, compared to 11 years ago, access to primary education, access to health care have all vastly improved, um, without question. Um, aside from the fact that we didn't go into Afghanistan to build schools or pave roads, um, if we look at the overall effectiveness of civilian aid programs, it's been a pathetic and utter failure. Um, Afghans themselves lack the economic resources and the technical expertise necessary to take over the programs and infrastructure once we leave. Uh, even the World Bank has warned that after 2014, the Afghan government may collapse because it's so dependent on foreign assistance. So we see this very weak correlation between foreign assistance and creating a sustainable, developed uh, nation state in Afghanistan. I think overall what we've seen is sort of many problems, sort of even difficult to know where to begin. Uh, some would say it's the problem of development contracting in the sense that the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, they outsource development and reconstruction contracts to for-profit firms. And what inevitably happened is that, you know, these contracts were given out independent of the quality of the services provided. So there'd be you know, roads built uh, without being used. There'd be schools built with no teachers to staff them. Um, many times, even uh, the local contractors, and of course, these contracts were subcontracted and subcontracted and subcontracted, um, that they just didn't even listen to the local Afghans themselves. Um, in certain areas uh, where Afghans were asking for wells, uh, they were instead given solar panels for street lighting. And, you know, in parts of this country, people use dung and straw for fuel. So they would take the wire, uh, copper and the metal and the solar panels to use for their own purposes and even take cement that for recently paved roads and use it to reinforce their homes. So we really did lack the cultural knowledge. And as a result, uh, billions of dollars have been wasted, unfortunately. What can we say of the hostility uh, with respect to the Afghan people such as they exist with continued U.S. intervention there? I think it's divided. I think it's fairly mixed. Uh, I think you'd find many Afghans are quite ambivalent about uh, the continued U.S. troop presence and the international military presence. Uh, there are certain folks, I think, in the cities and in, especially in the capital who are more Western-oriented, who uh, have either you know lived outside the country and come back um, and 
they are certainly proponents of a continued foreign troop presence. If you go mainly into the, like the rural areas where two-thirds of the country does live, I think you'd find a little more resistance to a foreign occupying force. And of course, you know, there's a bit of, you know, uh, they may be resistant to accepting a foreign troop presence, but also they understand that the Taliban might be worse. Um, so they cooperate with the United States and coalition forces uh, only temporarily, but then they fear reprisal if they stick their necks out too far. Um, and also, I mean, the, the writ of the Afghan government beyond Kabul remains very weak. So even if we sort of push the Afghan government into certain areas, it lacks the ability to, to sustain uh, that progress or the presence in certain areas, especially when you consider the presence of uh, local courts um, is very much absent. And so many Afghans, local Afghans, have to rely on a local district mullah who doubles as a Taliban operative to adjudicate their judicial disputes, you know, whether that be over property or, or you know, property lines. Um, and so many areas of the country where there's an absence of the Afghan uh, government, even if we had tried to go into those areas, especially in Helmand and Kandahar and in the south, um, we've been unable to sustain those gains. So I think it's a bit ambivalence uh, amongst the Afghan people and it's difficult to sort of pin down what one Afghan thinks. But certainly I think over the last year and a half or so, uh, there have been a number of high profile incidents that have um, served to sort of agitate the Afghan people. When we saw the incidental burning of Qurans, uh, the urination of U.S. troops on the Taliban corpses, uh, the, the behavior of expatriates uh, in, in the capital, um, there's just been a number of, of problems in terms of cultural and social cohesion and awareness. My sense is that Hamid Karzai can come to the United States and speak boldly and say pretty much anything he wants. And our <sighs> last 10 years in Afghanistan have demonstrated that the interests of Kabul are, broadly speaking, not aligned with the interests of the United States. What are the big lessons that we see evidence that the United States is taking from having spent a decade in Afghanistan? Well, you know, I think President Obama has learned that sustaining a long-term occupation of Afghanistan is not in America's best interests. He's trying to wind down the war, even though he, of course, tripled the number of troops in Afghanistan uh, since 2009. I think there's an awareness within the administration that there's a very, very limited ability for us to change and shape a foreign society, especially one as different as Afghanistan. You know, Afghanistan's not Germany or Japan. Um, it's not um, a, a country uh, with a sort of homogeneous ethnic population population. Um, there's a great deal of underdevelopment throughout the country. Uh, it was never really a cohesive whole. And if, when it was, it was historically under Afghan leadership, not Afghan leadership propped up by foreign powers. Uh, so there are many sort of lessons we must take away on top of the cross-border sanctuaries that exist in Pakistan. And we haven't even yet to address Pakistan, which is, of course, a critical element uh, to any sort of resolution to this, to this conflict. One thing I would also add uh, that uh, I think something Americans have learned and they should learn, those who are unaware, is that no number of troops in Afghanistan will prevent a terrorist attack on the United States. We've seen over the past 11 years two large-scale occupations, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, and yet the American people were still exposed to the Fort Hood shooter, the underwear bomber, the Times Square uh, bomber, uh, various foiled and terrorist attacks and near misses. Uh, so clearly what happens over there certainly can have an impact on what's happening here, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we can provide the stability that's necessary to stop terrorists from either Afghanistan or beyond the region uh, from attacking the United States. In December 2001, the Bonn Agreement 
uh, said the international community's determination was, quote, to end the tragic conflict in Afghanistan and promote national reconciliation, lasting peace, stability, and respect for human rights in the country. Again, after a decade in this country, our mission there seems completely divorced from this kind of goal that in December 2001 may have looked somewhat reasonable. So what are the prospects for uh, – peace there. If- I think the prospects for peace depend largely on whether the coalition and neighboring countries can help resolve Afghanistan's internal politics, which have been very fractious and very difficult to sort of align uh, with foreign interests or the interests of one particular segment of Afghan society. Um, after the collapse of uh, negotiations in Qatar, uh, we've seen Pakistan take the lead. It's this uh, peace process roadmap of 2015. And this would, in theory, cede the south and eastern portions of the country to the Taliban and accommodate them politically with uh, provincial governorships and ministerial positions. And I think one problem with this is that, you know, there'd be this feeling, at least within Washington, that all of the aid and assistance that we've given, the 2,100 U.S. troops that have been killed, the $600 billion that we've spent has been in vain um, if we cede these territories to the Taliban which, I mean, if we look at the lay of the land right now, that is the reality on the ground, despite our best efforts. I think one other critical problem, though, is that Pakistan certainly is essential to any sort of settlement in Afghanistan, uh, but its interests are very much at odds with other neighboring countries, especially India, which uh, throughout the 1990s backed and is still remains uh, very close to the Northern Alliance, which was uh, the Taliban's main enemy. Um, So seeing how that dynamic plays out in terms of cobbling together a government that has all the buy-in of various countries will be difficult. But I think most importantly, uh, when we look at Pakistan and its relationship with Afghanistan, al-Qaeda was a client of and patron to the Taliban, which in turn was supported by Pakistan. And severing those relationships has been extremely difficult. So we may have to prepare for the eventuality of the Taliban not severing ties with al-Qaeda and Pakistan still supporting the Taliban. Malou Innocent is a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute. You can read more of her work at Cato.org.